All right. It is my great pleasure to welcome back on the show, Rob Wolf. How are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Um, fantastic. It's uh it's been a it's been a long holiday season for me. Uh, my day job is retail, pretty hectic. Um, but it's good to it's good to be through that and um finally having this interview again that did not record last time, so no one got to hear it. <laughs> Just you and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, it was fun for me to just talk to you, but it was kind of a waste of, you know, everyone's productive time. I don't know. It could have, we, maybe we, you know, we avoided going out to pick up groceries or something and avoided getting hit by like a milk truck or something like that. Like we just right? have I no idea. You could know? have saved your life. Yeah. We could have. Yeah. Um, so, for the for the few people that don't know, who is Rob Wolf? Oh my goodness, uh, balding middle aged guy uh, becoming ever more sarcopenic. I, I guess more germane to your scene. Uh, I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. I was a research biochemist uh, way way back in the in the uh, nearly forgotten times. I uh, have written a couple of New York Times bestselling books, and I guess I've been fairly instrumental in the early launching and development of this kind of paleo ancestral health scene. But I, I've done work in a, a bunch of different areas. Like I sit on the board of directors of a medical risk assessment program. We got to do some pretty cool stuff helping police, military, and firefighters get screened for uh, metabolic disease. And we appear to have saved the city of Reno about $22 million uh, doing a, a metabolic risk assessment program wow. for their police and fire department. So I've been really, really fortunate to um, find this passion for health and wellness and, and be able to, to carve out a living doing it over the last 23 years. So that that's kind of the, the, uh, you know, 30,000 foot overview on things. So trying to, trying to control my weight, like I came across, I was like, you know what? You know who wasn't fat? Cavemen. What did cavemen do? <laughs> that led me to you, um, the Paleo Solution, which, I mean, the concept is like, if if you tell the people, like, generally they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, what did our what our ancestors eat? Oh, okay. Well, that that probably was what we should eat too. Uh, just you know, to some degree, we've invented some pretty tasty food. Um, some of it, some of it not so bad. Some of it pretty darn bad. So your last book you wrote, because I read Paleo Solution. I love that. Uh, I read Wired to Eat. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, your latest book you came out with a couple years ago was Sacred Cow. Correct. Tell us about that. So Sacred Cow looks at this uh, kind of intersection of food systems and the environment. And it, it, it basically asks the question, like, what is the potential role uh, from a health, environmental, and ethical consideration from meat or animal product inclusive food system. And we we get in and start unpacking some questions around like, isn't it super inefficient to feed animals? Couldn't couldn't we feed more humans versus, you know, feeding feed to, to animals and then eating the animals? Uh, don't uh, animals, particularly cows, take up a lot of water? Don't they use a lot of land? Isn't the... Uh, they're a, a big environmental concern around, uh, uh, you know, like greenhouse gas emissions from methane. And we we go through and just try to unpack what what is the thinking around each one of these, you know, these topics. And then where does the 
where does the data actually play out on that story? And, you know, some of this stuff is really interesting, like the land use piece. Um, two thirds of the world's land masses are grasslands. They're amenable literally for nothing other than growing grass. Um, they're, it, some of them have been uh, converted into farmland, but most of these areas are either too rocky, too hilly to really be amenable as, as a cropping land. But man, they grow grass like crazy. And they help to grow the animals that live on grass. And then all of the, the like downstream, you know, ecological niches, birds and insects and everything, um, that stuff works amazingly well. And if you don't have animals grazing that grass, these grasslands die because they have co-evolved literally since before the, the time of the, the dinosaurs. There's been this type of a, a, an ecosystem, this type of a, a niche, grasslands and, and large uh, herbivores basically living on them. So th that that claim of like inappropriate land use ends up being really dubious when you 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 actually scrutinize this thing. The water use is kind of fascinating because people will say, oh, there's all this, you know, uh, there's a bathtub of water that's used to make every, you know, pound of of beef or what have you. But what's interesting when you dig into the the details on that story. There are three types of water that we usually classify from like an eco ecological perspective. There's green water that just falls from the sky, rain, snow, mist, that, that type of stuff. There's blue water, which is uh, surface water, lakes, rivers, streams, those sorts of things. And then there's gray water, which is usually the leftover remnants of either like sewage treatment or maybe uh, 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 kind of effluent from animal husbandry and, and whatnot. 94 in conventionally raised animals about 94 percent of the water that is accounted for in their life cycle is green water it is water that just falls on the earth it's going to fall on the earth whether there's grass there whether there's not grass there whether there's grass and animals there so it, it it's presented as if there's like this really massive resource you know, pull away from, uh, uh, you know, that this water could be used elsewhere, which ironically, when we look at things like almonds, that is really the case. Like where almonds are grown for the most part in the United States and California, they're depleting groundwater like crazy in, in these areas to, to grow these almonds. So that's actually a use case for, for an example where, uh, below ground aquifers are being depleted to, um, you know, to uh, uh, grow these almonds. Whereas in the, the case of animals, that is by and large not the way that things happen. And then in in uh, holistically managed or regenerative ag type circles like, like grass-fed animals, up to 98% of the water is the water that just falls naturally on the earth and, and whatnot. So, you know, I could, I could go deeper on that, but there's a lot of these things that it, it's like a, uh, an asymmetric war, but it's in a really weird way. Usually in asymmetric warfare, you have the small, underfunded, under-resource utilized people doing these things that have disproportionate impact. And in this scenario, you know, I, I would say like, ironically, folks that are more vegan leaning seem to be very well aligned with media, social media, government, big business, ironically. They're all very much, you know, lined up and kind of going arm in arm in this stuff. But they will make statements like meat is bad for the environment. Meat consumes too much water. Meat damages, the, you know, the, the uh, ecosystems and whatnot. 
And these statements are just made as truth of fact, no support material. And then it falls upon people like me that it, you need to do kind of a mini PhD dissertation in each one of these verticals to be able to properly address it. I can't credibly just go in and say, no, this isn't, this isn't factual. You know, like the greenhouse gas emissions are part of a cycle. The methane, which is, methane is a carbon molecule with, with four hydrogen molecules attached to it. The carbon at the center of that methane was carbon dioxide days, weeks, months earlier. And then it got brought into a plant as part of photosynthesis. And that plant was consumed by the animal. And the plant either became directly part of the matrix of the animal, much like if, if we ate a banana and the, you know, the carbohydrate of the banana went into our system, or as part of the cellulosic fermentation, the breakdown of the cellulose into digestible constituents for the animal, some of that gets converted into methane. But that is part of a cycle, and that methane will be in the atmosphere for between five and 10 years. UV radiation will hit that methane at some point and cleave it and turn it, 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 convert it into carbon dioxide and water, and then it's back into this carbon cycle. So you simply cannot, accounting-wise, count uh, uh, biogenic sources of methane the same way. You can't look at a termite mound and the methane that these termites make and equate it to what's coming out of the tailpipe of a car or the, the, you know, the engines of a jet. It's just not remotely the same stuff. But this is what these folks do in this kind of asymmetric warfare manner. They make these statements and they're accepted as point of fact. And then it's really a lot of work. Like maybe half of your listeners have committed suicide, even listening to me fumble around, try to, uh, trying to uh, unpack and explain this stuff, you know, and, and, uh, when we turned in this this manuscript for the book, it was 600 pages long. We managed to get it whittled down to 300 pages. But it's a to really do diligence on this stuff. It's a massive amount of work. Or I just do hand waving, and some people may may buy that. But I, that's almost as as bad as what's happening on the the other side of this thing. So that that's what Sacred Cow is about. It's kind of trying to unpack the ethical, environmental, and health considerations of an animal product or meat-inclusive food system. Fantastic. Um, it really kills me the way that people on both sides get very dogmatic, and and, and um, they just, like, one of us, one of, like, they just, they, they, they take their truths with no research and just run with it, and they don't, they don't allow themselves to like question themselves. It's just this, this is by God, this is the truth. And that's all there is to it. And cows take more resources than wheat and, you know, vice versa. The other side won't listen to anything either. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, like, have you gotten people that have like read your book and been like, you know what? I was a dogmatic vegan and, uh, you know, I'm questioning myself now, like, cause that, that to me, like that would be the best thing you could have done. We have, we have, we, we definitely have had that experience. Uh, Diana Rogers is my co-author and th there was a piece that was originally a blog post on her part. And then it became a pretty pivotal part of the book, but her daughter who was at the time 10, 10 years old, Phoebe was 10 at the time. Yeah. Um, they were just talking about like uh, some of their sheep had been, uh, Diana uh, ran a uh, 
a regenerative farm and they had cows and sheep and goats and all kinds of, they had animals and plants and because that's what you need for a functioning ecosystem. <laughs> you know, shocker. <laughs> you can't have one without the other. It, it fails otherwise, uh, surprisingly, but they, uh, some coyotes got some of their sheep and, um, her daughter was like, so asking a bunch of questions, like it's kind of heavy, it's death, you know, and, and existential, you know, kind of like, oh shit, you know, um, it, it's just heavy stuff. So they had a lot of discussions around this and, and Diana talked about the fact that like the, the keem, the iron in the, the blood of these animals was forged in the heart of a star at one point you know, which is our best understanding of the way the fucking universe works at, at this point, you know, that these heavier elements come, come about from, from, uh, uh, you know, uh, galactic processes when, when stars go through their life cycle and whatnot, you know, and we forget that stars, planets, solar systems, potentially the universe has a life cycle to it, you know, so that this is a, a kind of fractal process, but her daughter was kind of checking all this stuff out and thinking about it and thinking about the need for plants and animals to interact in this way. Like where the sheep had died, like basically they were, they were going to bury it there and kind of compost it there. And then Diana was mentioning, you know, we'll probably plant some stuff right on top of this because there's going to be so many nutrients here that we're going to get this really amazing productivity out of the spot. And her daughter, Phoebe, again, who was 10 years old at the time, she she just quipped kind of offhandedly. She said, it's impossible to be vegan because everything lives and everything dies and everything lives off of the, the death of something else. And, you know, what, what's a saying from the mouths of, of babes or, you know, what have you. And um, that has been really powerful because literally young woman, you know, 10 years old at the time, she's 13, 14 years old now, but this really deep insight. And I, I think that, um, when people see that, like, if you haven't worked on a farm or really dealt with lots of, of animals in particular, this life death cycle is really hidden these days. You know, when our, when our elder folks in our, our lives get near the end of their life, usually they get farmed out somewhere like very few people die at home these days um uh death is this kind of weird sanitized thing in in western experience and uh what i've noticed within the kind of uh, uh, for lack of a better term i know it, it creates this us versus them but like the vegan kind of community there's this real discomfort with death and I mean, death is a gnarly thing. Like it, it, it's just, it, you know, it shakes you to your, to your foundation, just trying to understand it and, you know, try to, try to reconcile this notion that like, I didn't exist for all of existence before potentially I, I, you know, we can get into metaphysics and stuff like that if we want to, but, um, potentially I didn't exist for all of history before. And then I'm here for this tiny little blip of time. And then I'm gone for the rest of existence. And when you start trying to wrap your head around shit like that and, you, you know, an animal that you care for and it dies, whether it becomes part of your food or it was a pet or whatever, it's really heavy stuff. It, it really legitimately is. And it also, though, is something that we need to come to terms with because it's reality. And I, I just see a lot of folks in that that kind of vegan leaning space. Um, they're very 
paternalistic and that they feel like they've got the one right answer for everybody. And like, we've seen a lot of parallels with this, with um, COVID. And I think of a lot of like the kind of social justice activity where there's a small vocal group of people that are like, there's something wrong here. And this is the one way to deal with this, you know, boom, and here's your solution. And if you push back against it, you're a racist and a bigot and this and that, you know, and on and on and on. So to your point, you know, it, it becomes very difficult to have any type of nuanced discussion around this stuff or, or uh, uh, we're made in many ways to be to feel uncomfortable about even questioning any of this, like you're a bad person to even have a question around this, which um, this is one of the the uh, problems that I had with with religion as a kid is that I would have questions and I could tell that my questions made people uncomfortable. And then it fed into like, well, you just need to be quiet and toe the line, different stuff like that. And I, I, that's a um, if, if you want me to really dig in and get super intrigued and excited about something, that, that's exactly the way to do it, you know, versus like sitting down and engaging me and having a great conversation. Like uh, everything's probably going to go pretty well for you in that circumstance. So I know I'm blabbering like an idiot now, but yeah, that's, um, that's, uh, kind of this, this crazy feature to this story that we continue to, to deal with. And like, as time has gone on, it was super early in COVID and it was my wife, she just popped her head up. And I mean, literally, it was like March of 2020 or what I mean, really, really yeah. early. But she's like, hey, you watch. Um, they are going to tie climate change, social justice topics and COVID all together in a seamless, seamless thing. Like it's going to be like a whack-a-mole, like you just you change one word for the other. And I'm like, no, that's crazy talk. And it was maybe... Um, Three weeks, four weeks after that, there was a World Economic Forum video, and it literally used climate change, social justice, and and uh, 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 you know these uh, other uh, interrelated features, and it just seamlessly. I'm like, well, okay, there you go, you know. And so it's, um, yeah, yeah. I'll shut up now, and <laughs> I can just go on and on about that stuff. We we really could, uh, and I think. I think like 99% of my audience would eat it up too. Um, speaking about kids, uh, I have a three-year-old and she, she has gotten like right now she's hitting the why stage. And I try so hard to encourage it. Like I, like, I mean, I think every parent gets a little annoyed when they're like on their 37th why down the why train. But I'm like, right. I'm just going to keep on answering. Like, I, I don't want her to ever lose that create like that questioning like that curiosity yeah. like just keep asking why and i'll just keep giving you answers uh kids are great it, it, and usually it ends up being one of the three uh laws of thermodynamics is ultimately one of the either mass mass and energy don't get cre uh, created or destroyed uh once it's in movement it tends to stay in movement and you you know uh and then things tend to go to shit over time too so it, yeah. so one of one of those things usually usually ticks the the box so at the very once you've augured in like 20 questions deep yeah yeah it it, it gets universal and and thermodynamics <laughs> uh, yeah next oh good so we're we're going right into another good one here um and you may have you may have like you've you've touched on it we can go we can go through it pretty quickly um it's 
it's about the war on meat. Like it really seems like it's an all out hands on deck meat right now. Um, and you, you've talked about it, um, that they think that it takes more resources. Um, what do you really think is the root? Like why is meat being demonized so hard? I think there's a couple of layers to it, but a Forbes article was really fascinating in that it it it, it was pretty controversial, but it, it drew this parallel between um, veganism and the brown shirts within the early Nazi movement and how these people were thinking that they were doing something good. You know, they were protecting the motherland and, you know, all this stuff. And then they became the useful idiots as, as Stalin ultimately called them. And, and um, so I think you've got a group of people that are really concerned about different environmental considerations. And I'm not in the climate change doesn't exist box. I, I think it does exist. What I do think though, is that climate change has been going on for quite some time. If you look at the Netherlands, Two thirds of the Netherlands is under below sea level, and they've been building dikes and and figuring out how to how to secure their their part of the the world for quite some time. And I think that what we're being told as to like an existential threat is not accurate. I think that some areas will be really negatively impacted by by elements of climate change. I think some areas are going to thrive. This is something that isn't discussed at all. Like there, some of these more northern latitudes are going to become much more hospitable, and we may end up just seeing uh, uh, changes in in locations where food production is optimized and whatnot. But we're being sold this notion that this is an existential threat, that this is the end of our species. And that is just patently false. Like I, and I, I, I'm so pained at saying that because all that we've been told the last couple of years is like, here's the truth, here's the, you know, falsehood. And so I, I just cringe at, at saying that. But if you really get in and look at the, the reports that are generated around climate change and the worst case scenarios, there are some concerning features there. But if humans are, are good at anything, it's solving problems. And we're best at solving problems when we are given accurate information. And this is what is so concerning about this attack on meat, because like element outfits like the World Economic Forum and other really august, uh, uh, you know, kind of institutions have made claims that like upwards of 70 to 80 percent of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by animal, you know, food production. This is totally false. It's more two to three percent at most. And it's part of a biogenic cycle, like I, what I, you know, explained a little bit earlier. There's carbon dioxide in the air, becomes part of the plant, becomes part of the animal, back in the air. This is totally different than mining fossil fuels out of the ground that have been there for hundreds of millions of years. And it, it, that is a completely different accounting that needs to be taken care of there. And if we are focusing the world's efforts on something that is a rounding error and doesn't really matter, then we're not actually paying attention to the things that we need to do to be to be ready to deal with climate change issues. You know, like some of these low-lying areas in uh, Southeast Asia and whatnot, they need to really study what uh, the Netherlands have been doing as far as building uh, dikes and levees and, and uh, uh, securing farmland against the encroachment of, of rising sea levels. But we can do that if we allow people 
to industrialize and become wealthier and, and have economic infrastructure. And what's fascinating about this war on meat, it is a war on meat. It's a war on energy, which means that it is fostering and perpetuating poverty, which will make people horribly equipped for dealing with the changes that are actually coming. And it's focusing energy and resources into a direction that really doesn't matter. Like going after an animal husbandry, it's, it's pissing in the wind as to if you really wanted to, uh, you know, quote, address climate change. But what the, the motivation is there, like we've got, I think, well-meaning people on the one hand that become the useful idiots of people like Bill Gates and these folks that own the intellectual property around fake meats, basically. And uh, again, there are people smarter than myself and more, more credentialed than myself that have made this same case. Folks in the software world, in the technology world, want to see food owned and operated like the intellectual property of software. And you can only do that when you take raw materials and then convert them into an IP protected end product like Impossible Burger or, you know, uh, uh, Beyond Meat or what have you. Bill Gates uh, it, it is now the largest uh, private owner of farmland in the United States. And he's a huge proponent of displacing normal animal husbandry and trying to replace it with these, these, you know, lab grown or, or uh, fake meat alternatives, which are wholly the, the byproduct of the industrial row crop food system. Like you gotta, you gotta use your, your roundup and your Monsanto products to be able to grow that stuff. It's not grown organically. You can't really grow it organically at scale. And this is the stuff that, you know, gets fed into these meat alternatives. So I think that there's well-meaning elements of it, you know, where people look out at the messaging around climate change, they're legitimately concerned and they want to care about something. Um, and then you, you, uh, you have corporate capture of media and social media. And I mean, like the Twitter files, if folks haven't stayed up on that, the release of, of some of the internal documents of, of, uh, you know, three, three letter agencies capturing, um, uh, Twitter. And it's just now coming out some of the stuff around like COVID vaccines and actually some of the climate change narrative is some of the stuff that's coming up now. So it's not actually a conspiracy theory. There's, there's <laughs> factual stuff around this, uh, all of this material. And then you just have that, that final, um, you know, kind of capitalism gone wrong, uh, thing of, of trying to capture our, our food systems so that you, you have no resilience, like you are wholly dependent on the outputs of this industrial row crop food system. And it's not particularly healthy for us, but us not being particularly healthy is good for pharmaceutical companies. And that, you know, this is stuff that I've heard other people say for years. I'm like, I don't know if it's that coordinated a thing. And I don't know that it's really coordinated, but man, opportunism is, is an easy thing to jump on board with. And I think there's a ton of that. I think that uh, recognizing that, you know, if we can keep people a little bit softened up and not that healthy and kind of dependent on the, the system, there's a lot of money to be made off that. And, and if you, I think about myself, like I, I, I don't know the last time I went to a doctor, I think it was when I did a discovery channel reality show and I needed to get a, a physical like 11 years ago. And that's the last time I've been to a doctor. So I'm not plugged into the pharmaceutical scene. I'm not a, 
I, I don't spend money in that. Um, I buy very little in the, the way of like consumer product goods. I buy one car with cash about every 12 years and I drive it until the wheels fall off. Like it, it, most of the economy of the world would end if everybody ended up living like, like I do, you know, I'm, I'm just not a, a, a spinner of the bulk of those wheels. And uh, I'm not saying what I'm doing is the right way to do it, but it, it, there's powerful incentives to not be me for sure. Yeah. There was a lot in that. Uh, <laughs> there was, yeah. <laughs> Like it, so it makes me think like we like our like the last like I'd say hundred years or so of like human civilization we've had like idealistic environment like the weather the like it has been like uncharacteristically fantastic for like happy humans compared to like our total like how many yep. like ten thousand years of ice ages like. It, like we we've been living pretty like you know like we've been living pretty good um the climate changes yes um we probably like definitely humans have caused something to destroy the environment and i feel like the climate change activists are doing a lot to make people like when i was born in the eighties. So I grew up with like conserve can con, No conservation conservationism. Yes. And that yeah. was fantastic. Yes. We need to take care of our environment. Um, but I, I feel like the whole tax credits and like carbon credits, like that's not the right. I think we need to go back to taking care of the environment. Um, and, and not, not, um, putting beans on paintings. That's, that's that's probably not the way to solve things. And you know the the, no. the funny thing with all that is that you one only gives a shit about the environment once one is not dealing with the the vagaries of basic survival. And so when you when you see so like in the United States and and, and Europe, I, I was born in the early seventies, and uh, leaded gasoline was still a thing when I was a kid. And then we figured out, oh, that's really a horrible idea. And there's a whole interesting, terrible story around why leaded gasoline was used in lieu of some other things. And it, it was basically like corporate greed that, that drove that. But China, India, the rest of the world never had a leaded gasoline scenario. They, they jumped, leapfrogged over that. Like they were the beneficiaries of, of that type of technology. There are... Um, when I was a kid, there were rotary phones and the bulk of our information went over these th these things called phone lines. There are places in Central America that are, are still developing nation in, in many regards, but they have like cellular information distribution networks that make what's in the United States look laughable. They, they are infinitely better. And so there are these opportunities to leapfrog over failures or experiments of, of the past. This is what the developing world has as an opportunity. But the developing world needs energy and it needs energy to be able to develop economic infrastructure and it needs rule of law and it needs property rights and these basic things that allow people to carve out, you know, what we benefit from liberal Western democracies. And when you do that for these people, or when they, when these people do it for themselves, when globally this stuff happens, 
folks tend to have fewer kids. They tend to focus more effort and energy into the fewer kids that they have. And then they look around, they're like, God, I've got kids and there's like broken bottles and garbage and shit everywhere. Let's clean this stuff up and let's have a recycling program and let's take care of things and let's make sure our groundwater is healthy and good things start happening. Sri Lanka is a great example of this where it was a, a shockingly poor country and then it began industrializing. It, it was rapidly on par with becoming a, a first world developed nation. And then for reasons that we can only speculate about, the, the government of Sri Lanka basically said, we are shifting the totality of our, our food production to organic and we're spinning on a dime. And I am a huge proponent of regenerative agriculture and organic and everything, but you can't take a national food system and spin it on a dime. It takes time to transition that stuff. And even then, this is going to be one of the things going forward on the food system side that, that the idealists are, are going to have a hard time with. All of our, our, if we manage to get to a spot where we have a globally sustainable food system, it's not going to look exactly like polyface farms. It's not going to look exactly like white oak pastures. It's also not going to look exactly like, the, you know, some sort of Monsanto driven process, but there's going to be some amount of technology and, and infrastructure that's involved with that. But the main thing is that we renutrify the soil and we don't damage the waterways and that this thing could go on indefinitely, you know, for, for all intents and purposes. And this is the stuff that, that we need to drive forward on. But Sri Lanka now is, is experiencing massive food insecurity and starvation. And they had gone from like one of the poorest, lowest uh, uh, per capita incomes in the world to rocketing towards like first nation status. And now that has just been crushed. And we see examples like in the Netherlands where 3000 farms are going to be purchased by the government to be taken offline because they need to meet climate change goals around atmospheric admissions that aren't doing a goddamn thing in the grand scheme of things when we we think about like the, the carbon cycle and whatnot. Uh, there's huge uh, uh, roadblocks being put into, uh, say, like natural gas expansion. And I'm a huge fan of nuclear energy, both the, the fission nuclear energy that we have, small modular reactors and stuff like that, and also putting more money into the development of fusion technology, which we just had kind of a significant breakthrough on that. But what we need to do is really invest in cheap energy to help the world industrialize and get through this, this process. If we don't ruin things, we could have every man, woman, and child lifted out of abject poverty within 30 years. Like the projections are that if we don't cock block the opportunity for the rest of the world to do what we've already done, that the, the poorest people in the world in 30 years would have a standard of living consistent with someone who makes $60,000 a year in the United States right now. That's not bad. That's not dying from malaria and dysentery and, and on and on and on. And there will be challenges with that. Those people are also going to be awash in like processed foods and they're going to need to deal with the diseases of modernity and all that type of stuff. But it also becomes a scenario in which people are wealthy enough to actually care about the environment around them and care about their endangered species and care about, you, you know, waterways and whatnot. But we saw this in, in a really interesting fashion in the 2008 economic collapse in Greece, which is arguably a, a developed nation, it's part of Europe and whatnot, but energy prices exploded in Greece. 
They had all kinds of economic turmoil and people went out and just cut down trees through the, the, the countryside. And it was much dirtier. It, it caused a lot of eco, uh, ecological problems because people were literally starting to make decisions around, am I going to freeze to death or not? And, and am I going to be able to cook food or not? And things went really badly. So like shoring up economic, you know, shortfalls and, and energy access. That is, um, ironically, if we focused all of our, or the bulk of our efforts into those areas, all the rest of this would take care of itself, but it's been economic development and, and comparatively inexpensive energy that has driven the, the prosperity that we've seen over the last, you know, century within the bulk of the developed world and the developing world, like the changes that we've seen in the developing world. Uh, I agree. Um, <clears throat> I, I honestly think the best thing people can do for the environment is to have a child so they care about leaving a good planet for that child. Totally agree. Like, um, like me before and after kids, totally different. Like, um, I, you know, what was that? Did you ever hear that Dennis Leary song? Like, I'm an asshole. He's like driving like a big Cadillac, eating a Big Mac out of the styrofoam container. Right. Like, yeah. And then you have kids. You're like, uh, I don't want it. Like, I don't want my daughter to inherit a trash heap. Right. That's great. Um, so if I was to press you for one, like what was it like the number one thing people could do to have better health? What, what would you say? Like, like this is, this is my advice to you. Oh man. I, I would be torn. Be See, I'm going to sneak in two things here, but I, I, uh, I would be torn between making sure that you eat like a gram of protein per pound of body weight would, would be one recommendation because I, I think that it's really hard to eat overeat after that. You tend to get much more nutrient density, but man, right on the, the tails of that is improving your sleep. Like I think that the uh, uh, lack of sleep that folks experience um, staying up too late, messing around on, on electronic devices, uh, just disordered sleep. Uh, that crushes people. Uh, it, I forget what year it was, but the um, Centers for Disease Control acknowledged years ago that shift work is a known carcinogen. So like people that, you know, police, military, fire, uh, medical, on and on, uh, that folks in those those lines of work, when they when they work these disordered shifts, like their, their cancer rates are markedly increased. Um, new parents, like when you, when that kid arrives and your sleep is hammered, then you're kind of like, oh, when you think back to like biblical explanations of people having kids when they're 15, you're like, oh, I could have handled that then. You know, I was an idiot, but I could have stayed up all yeah. night multiple days in a row and survived that. Whereas when you hit your like 30s, 40s and 50s and, and you have a, a kid that's, you know, got the trots or something and you got to stay up all night, you're like, I'm going to die trying to keep this kid alive, you know? So I would say sleep. And then pro adequate protein, like from real, you, you know, uh, chicken, fish, meat, you know, all, all that type type of stuff. Um, if, if you focus every meal, it's got a protein centric approach and it doesn't mean you have to be keto. It doesn't mean you have to be paleo, but just make sure you get a decent whack of protein at every meal. It's very difficult to overeat then. And then prioritizing your, your sleep hygiene, go to bed earlier, turn off your devices, uh, I don't have them on my desk, but like the blue block glasses, like the red glasses, if you're going to yeah. be up in the evening and you're watching like 
you know, TV or something like put on some blue blockers. It makes such a profound difference for people. And if, if your listeners do anything like tracking heart rate variability, if you haven't been doing these things and then you start doing it, you'll notice that your HRV score improves dramatically. And that's a sign of what your overall like uh, uh, total stress load is and your recovery status and whatnot. And you'll see a marked improvement if you improve your nutrition on that protein side and then improve your sleep on that, that lifestyle side. Uh, I'll take two answers. That's great. Um, and it's free. Like they're, I, I'm not selling it. It's completely free. And if, if folks search like Rob Wolf protein, I've written so much stuff on that and Rob Wolf sleep. Like I've got a free uh, sleep hygiene guide that, that folks can, can download. Like there's no purchase. This is just on, on your listeners to get out and, and do it. But my God, it, it is like the greatest return on investment that they could possibly do for their health. Like those two, two things. So I, I love that you give away so much free stuff. Like you co-founded Element, uh, mm -hmm. as you see mm -hmm. on your shirt. Um, and you like there's recipes on the Element website where you're like, hey, if you don't want to buy Element, here's some homemade recipes. You can go make it yourself. Um, they're not as tasty, uh, but they'll they'll do the trick. And um, it's probably some of the best advertising. Like, here's a product we sell. Here's how you can make it yourself. Not the same, but you can make, you know, a facsimile um, mm -hmm. and, and like that for me like that that kind of cements like oh, I, I definitely want to like buy from this company um that they're that they're giving like that um well you and, know we we were founded and initially we um it's a long story and i won't go into a ton of it but the i figured out that i had some serious electrolyte deficiencies because i have to eat a low carb diet because of my gut and autoimmune issues and I, I've always felt not quite, I, I felt better than before I ate that way, but it was kind of like up and down as, as far as energy. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and just tough. And one of my friends who's a really sharp coach in this space, he was like, I don't think you're getting enough sodium. You know, I don't think you're getting enough electrolytes, enough sodium. I kind of fought him for a while, but then he finally was like, dude, go drink some pickle juice and then work out. And I did. And I was like, oh my God. Like, this is so important. He's like, yeah, I've known that for like 10 years, you know? And so we put together a free guide and we, we would on how to make your own at, at home, like uh, electrolyte broom, we called it keto aid. And it's like this much table salt, this much potassium chloride, which you can find it in any store. It's called no salt. You buy some super inexpensive uh, magnesium citrate, some lemon juice, stevia, water, shake it up and go. And it tastes really good. Like it, 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 it's good stuff. And we put this thing up and I just like pushed it out to, to the folks that follow me. Cause I was, I was just kind of eyeballing what these people had going on It's like 95% of the problems they had were insufficient electrolytes. And within six months of us posting this thing, we had a half million downloads of this guide and it was going like crazy. And people were like, this is so awesome. This helped me. But Hey guys, um, each time I travel, the TSA doesn't like my three bags of white powder. Like, could you figure yeah. out a diff different way to do this? And so that was like, we were born of a, a freemium offering. We just gave this thing away. We didn't ask for emails. Like it wasn't a lead magnet or anything like that. And it honestly, it's been really cool as a company where we don't have to spin up any BS stories about like, we have magic salt or anything. We're like, it's convenient and it tastes good. And if you don't like it, 
here's like a laundry list of ways that you could make it at home for pennies on on the dollar, the cost of what you would buy it. But usually when people buy it, they're like, oh, this really does taste good. And damn, this really is convenient, you know, and then they're they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my wife made me promise to tell you thank you because so we've been on keto on and off for a few years. Um, and if she goes like, if she goes like half a day and doesn't drink any element, she's like, man, I feel really bad. Like I don't, Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't drink any. Ele okay. Um, every time, like it, she has like a lot of health issues, probably some autoimmune issues. Like she has a bladder disease that borders on autoimmune symptoms. Okay. Um, so no element doing keto. Like she does keto. She feels better, but then she starts getting hammered. Um, yep. so element makes her feel great. Um, so yeah. we, we love element. That's awesome. And it's funny. I'm one of the co-founders and I can't tell you how many times in a week I'll be dragging and my wife will look at me and she's like, have you had any element today? And I'm like, damn you wife, you know? And it's just like, yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's great stuff. Let's see. let's see. I think I think we're about done. Um, yeah, I'm good. So there we go. I, one more thing. You can knock it out pretty quick. Okay. Um, we were just talking about element and your need to like. Why has salt been so demonized? Like, like, oh, hold on. Let me let me share a quick story. You'll you'll get a laugh out of this. Like, um, so I was with a coworker. We we're in a frozen food section at my store. Right. Uh, and he looked at the back of a box of like, it was like country fried steaks. And he looked at it, he's like, oh, that's a lot of sodium. Oh, I don't know if you should eat that. Um, and I'm like, that's your takeaway. Like, not everything else. Oh, that's a lot. Like, every, like people really hate sodium. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And it's not completely misfounded. Uh, the number one killer of people in developed countries is cardiovascular disease. And one of the primary drivers of cardiovascular disease is hypertension, high blood pressure. And a feature of high blood pressure is that we retain too much sodium and then we retain too much water and that makes our blood pressure go up. So it seems like a really, uh, uh, you know, you know, Sherlock Holmes, like, like open and shut case, you know, it, it seems, but the funny thing with biology is sometimes it's not a completely linear process. And when we really dig into the physiology on the hypertension, there are great randomized control trials, like gold standard medical interventions where they have folks, they have hypertension, they uh, put them on a low sodium or a no sodium diet and their blood pressure doesn't really go down that much. It'll go down a little bit. I'm not saying that somebody who is hypertensive benefits from eating a bunch of more sodium, but it doesn't really change it that much. You know, either the increased sodium or on the flip side, the de you know, uh, dramatically decreasing sodium. And part of the reason for that is that we store sodium in our body. We store it in the connective tissue. We store it in our bones. And so you could be eating a low sodium diet for quite some time and your body will just mine sodium out of the bones to keep a normal level. And while it's pulling sodium out of the bones, it's also pulling calcium out of the bones. And if folks do a little bit of poking around hyponatremia or low sodium and osteoporosis, it's really interesting because that, that lack of sodium ends up apparently uh, driving a lot of the osteoporotic process. 
So then you, you're like, well, if dropping sodium in the diet doesn't really fix the problem, then what the heck is the problem? And the, the problem really appears to be insulin resistance. Uh, Dr. Gerald Reven back in the 80s coined this term uh, uh, syndrome X. And what he found is that people, uh, certain people, they would they had a tendency to store fat directly in the midsection. They had uh, elevated triglycerides, elevated blood pressure, elevated blood glucose levels. They had a couple of other uh, things. And now we we there are so many different things associated with uh, insulin resistance syndrome X. I mean, it's just thousands of different conditions you end up uh, linking back to this. But when our insulin levels are elevated, and this, this is true even in healthy people when they're eating a more carbohydrate-rich diet versus a low-carb diet, when we eat more carbs and or our insulin levels are elevated, we tend to upregulate a hormone called aldosterone, and aldosterone causes us to retain sodium. If you are healthy and insulin-sensitive and eating a higher-carb diet, that just means that you retain the, the appropriate amount of sodium and, and you're kind of good to go. If you're someone like me who eats a low carb diet and your insulin levels are low, it means you need to supplement a bunch with sodium or you feel like garbage, like what you described with your wife. But if you are insulin resistant, which the, before the pandemic, there was a study that suggested that 12%, only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. After the pandemic, 7% percent of Americans are metabolically healthy. And that poor metabolic health is driving a tendency for the body to, to retain sodium. And so again, if you are borderline uh, type two diabetic or, or hypertensive, something like element is probably not what you need, but the, there's, um, there's a reality that 80, 75 to 80% of the sodium that folks consume comes from the processed food that they eat. If we get people to shift to a minimally processed diet, whether it's paleo or vegan or keto or whatever, minimally processed foods don't have that much sodium in them. And, and then the glycemic load tends to drop. And when the glycemic load tends to drop, then we tend to retain less sodium. And that's where you, you might need some supplemental sodium. And it's interesting when you look at traditional cultures like Japanese culture has miso and some other salty constituents that are side dishes in Indian uh, foods. You have like chutneys and, and whatnot that are these super, super salty, you know, side dishes. And so even in traditional cuisines, they've usually had some sort of a really salty item that you ate adjunctively with the meal and it, it kind of balanced things out. Um, so that's, that's the interesting you know, kind of backstory on why sodium had this, this kind of bad rap. And it, it is a problem in that we eat a refined diet that is high in calories, carbs, and sodium. And that combination is gnarly. But if you just look at reducing sodium, it doesn't really fix the problem. Like we, we've seen pretty crystal clear on that, that that doesn't address things. You have to fundamentally alter diet and lifestyle in some way so that we reverse insulin resistance and get you back to normal metabolic health. And then we can play with the sodium levels much more, um, much more broadly. And if you eat on the low carb side of things that can double your sodium needs. If you live in a hot, humid environment that can double your sodium needs. If you are highly physically active, that can double your sodium needs from, from whatever your baseline is. Uh, great. 
yeah, it. If you if you look at like, cause I've played around with my fitness pal and like tracking sodium and like you can look at like, there's all if you eat like a paleo or a keto food and you don't add additional salt, like there's not a lot of salt. Like kale has a little bit of sodium in it, like, but there's not a lot of sodium in it. So if you look at the the sodium that they pack in the processed foods, it's so high. Um, yeah, which is weird because you can't taste it either. Like if you look at like a cup of noodle, it's got like 47,000 milligrams of sodium, but it's not salty. Um, right, right. Um, but yeah, that's. Oh, oh, and you know, just as a quick aside, they uh, uh, it you have to be careful with epidemiological studies where they look at what folks have have consumed and stuff like that. But there was some epidemiological studies and also some studies looking at sodium excretion, like how much sodium people excrete in the urine as a proxy for how much they consume, which it's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty close. And what was found in that story is that although the standard medical recommendation is to consume two grams or fewer of sodium per day, 2000 milligrams or fewer per day, all cause mortality is a U curve and it has a low ebb between four and six grams. And it's very, very steep at the uh, uh, below four grams. Like it's more dangerous as far as the literature tells us to be too low in sodium for all cause mortality versus having too much sodium. You have to get out to nearly eight to 10 grams of sodium per day to be as at risk for different health issues as at two grams per day. So it's actually far more forgiving to be on the higher side of sodium than on the too low side of sodium. But again, like if you're hypertensive, you don't want to supplement your sodium, but you also aren't going to fix your hypertension by eating a low sodium diet. Like it, it just hasn't been borne out in the literature at all. You have to fix all, all those other diet and lifestyle issues. yeah my internet's trying to poop itself there we go okay um, you're back i'm back okay um yeah rural internet is terrible i hate it. i i i'm i'm right there with you i have like eight megs uh download uh 1.5 meg upload so it's it's pretty abysmal yeah um <laughs> but third world countries are having super fast internet <laughs> yeah uh, not <laughs> Not us. Um, but th that's all I got. It has been amazing having you on and actually recording it. <laughs> details, details. Really fun. I, I would love to come back anytime you want to have me. Um, I would love to have you back at some point um, and, and ask you different questions. Um, I, would be fun at some point to have you on and go down some of those rabbit holes that like we could have some fun on. Um, but it's, I think we covered some great content today, and I think I think if people take some of the advice you gave them, um, sleep and protein, and get some more salt in their diet, and get a little less processed foods. Um, I, I mean, myself, you know, I, I'm a hundred pounds down, uh, and I feel great, and I can run around with my daughter and have fun. So, there's some good advice. Take it and run with it, and see how you see how you feel. Yeah, the worst thing is if you hate it, you can always go back to what you were doing before. You know, that's really the, the worst, worst thing. You're like, oh, health and leanness. 
this sucks. Like, give me a, a, a morbidity again, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. My, my wife, um, she's a Pisces. So she fights herself. Like she, she loves how she feels, uh, on, on keto. And she loves like, obviously she's lost quite a bit of weight and she's real close to like her size goal weights. Um, but man, does she miss donuts? Like oh, she, she fights herself. Man? She's like, ah, I wish, <laughs> but, um, logically she knows she needs to, you know, eat better and work out. Right. Right. Um, but that's, man, it's been a pleasure having you on Rob. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.